Bujari Gamarawa, and if you're learning alongside me, that is good day in Gadigal. I acknowledge the unceded land that I am on, Gadigal country, as part of the Eora Nation, and pay my immense respects and gratitude to elders past, present, and emerging as the true custodians of this land that I'm on. Hi there, and welcome to the episode. I'm Nadia Felsch, feminist, fat-positive nutritionist, and certified intuitive eating counsellor. In this podcast, we explore the practical aspects of leaving the diet mentality behind and finding your own food and body freedom. This episode is why diet culture is just the icing on the cake. And in a moment, I will be celebrating and sharing more with you on the fabulous guests joining me for this critical conversation. Firstly, there are some professional and personal roots that I want to share with you. This is kind of, I guess, in a way, the how I got here introduction. So inside my food freedom curriculum, and in fact, inside the very first module, which is called How We Got Here, see what I did there, I offer this challenge to my clients and I quote, diet culture is considered, especially by those whose bodies are most marginalized in this world, the quote unquote comfortable term to use and to discuss. It's a term that folks, particularly multi-privileged folks like me, can feel comfort in exploring and because of that, it carries harm. Because staying comfortable in this exploration isn't what's needed for us all to be free. We need to call diet culture what it is because those who are the most affected by it when the structural roots of diet culture are minimized also occupy the intersection of a number of marginalized identities. For example, if someone is disabled, black, queer, and fat, diet culture harms them uniquely at each intersection, end quote. So inside the very first module of my signature program, Food Freedom, as I said, I am challenging my clients to see that even diet culture is palatable. And I challenge you to see this as well. I include this upfront challenge both inside the Food Freedom curriculum and with you right here, right now, because what is really harming us, all of us, is the oppressive structures that we live within in society. Though I get it, I completely get it. It is more comfortable for most of us to view, you know, companies that make and sell diet pills as the villain. It's easier to shit on Noom, you know, who doesn't love to do that? The BMI as a concept and Weight Watchers as a company. Yet it is it is the case actually that they are just the icing on the cake when white supremacy, patriarchy and capitalism are the ingredients that allow for that cake to be made at all. In this episode, I share with my guest and with you as well, a clear turning point in how I viewed this reality and our shared world experience. So I came across intuitive eating as a concept and a framework in 2018, and I completed my intuitive eating post-grad counseling certification in 2019. Diet culture as a term and and something that I was unlearning was a huge part of my world in 2018 and 2019. Then the pandemic that we are all still living through hit in late 2019 and in early 2020, still with me on the timeline, amongst the total shitstorm of what that time was, the horrific fear, the panic, the political inaction, there was a variety of social movements that were gaining even more traction. And I was hearing and seeing something new to me. You will hear me talk later in this episode about a seminal professional experience that 
that really changed the course of my life personally and professionally. And, and Jessica was a, 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 a part of that. She didn't know that. Uh, and I could have gone on white womaning past this point. And instead I chose not to recognizing at this stage, as, as I shared earlier, that, that diet culture and the players that we often point to or criticize, they're actually just the icing on the cake when white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism are the ingredients allowing for that cake to be made. Again, I have popped some pivotal resources to the episode notes to learn more about this, and I invite you to do so. So since 2020, it's it's therefore been for me a really natural step to see the gamut of oppressive structures and systems that we all live within and to want to dismantle all of them, right? It is crystal clear to me how everything is related and intersecting. You know, anti-trans, anti-abortion, anti-queer, anti-woman, anti-fat, anti-black, it is oppression. And oppression works exactly as designed and our entire world is created from there. For me, this journey has and continues to be about challenging all of it, all of what we consider to be typical, to be normal, to be something to work toward. And that extends to, you know, challenging gender norms under heteropatriarchy, especially through my particular lens as a feminist and as a child-free woman. Another existence that is apparently abnormal and and something to be feared and criticized. You know, it, it, it's why if I come back to my specialty and much of what we are talking about in this episode, it's why healthcare is at the same time anti-trans as it is anti-abortion and anti-woman, anti-black and anti-fat all at the same time. Inherently, I would offer, you know, even for us to just discuss like at a, at a cursory level, the access to contraception, the access to abortion as healthcare for humans showcases how true this is. Also, when we think about the, and, and anyone who experiences a period knows the limited care and the limited knowledge on anything almost related to this, especially if we consider if it impacted men in the same way or people who didn't have uteruses. You know, the political commentary and the control that is in existence around gender affirming care, but we don't have that same chat and discourse and just horrific anti-trans sentiment when we talk about, for instance, breast enhancement surgery, and yet it is also gender affirming care. So when I say white womaning, I, I am saying that both as the way that we as white women are conditioned to behave with ourselves and our whiteness at the center. That is what it is. But also really representative of a privileged take generally, you know, like this, this idea, if it doesn't impact me, if I don't live it, if I don't see it, it either isn't there or it's just not my problem, except we are not free until we all are. And that sentiment is the DNA of my life and my work every single day. There are no exceptions to that, which is why it all has to come undone and be unpacked because no one can be left behind when we're talking about collective liberation. And I am. Which also brings me to mention that both my guest and myself in this episode are going to speak about capital H health giving with this assignment, you know, capital H health, the relevancy and the critical analysis of health as a social construct, where as I offer to clients, we really are learning healthism and we don't learn health. So we learn some version, all of us of eat right, quote unquote, you exercise 
and then you lose weight and that means healthy. So if you do things right, you are healthy and that that means better and that means happier. We have a reductive and a transactional thought and collective kind of behavioral commentary around health. And healthism very specifically places the problem of health on the individual and also therefore the solutions as well, which is why in that version we learn, we are only talking about ourselves and what we should or shouldn't be doing. Podcasts, I really believe, can be a brilliant and a powerful vehicle for our own journey, our own self-awareness, growth and expansion, if you like. It can feel less confronting and perhaps an entryway to more, to more vital conversations, learnings, and, and of course, unlearnings as well. And that's my goal with this episode. Let's be hard on the systems and not on people. So if you struggle with anything or a lot or all of what is coming up in this episode, and especially if you're white, that might be the case. So I invite you truly to surrender to it. Discomfort is human. It's it's something we can handle. You've likely handled a lot of hard things in life. And I say, especially if you're white, as I am, because right to comfort is a characteristic, a hallmark entitled experience that, that is born of white supremacy as a cultural value. And I've included more resources on this specifically inside the episode notes. So if you have little to, to no knowledge of what I'm sharing when I say what I just have, that's what it is. And I also challenge you to seek out the knowledge for all of our sakes. And now to my incredible guest who I felt so equally, you know, excited and privileged to chat to, you know, I, I almost fell off my chair when I received the initial email to set up this conversation. And my guest is Jessica Wilson. Jessica is a queer disabled dietitian, author, and community organizer. Her goal is to end the harm caused by the social constructs that we name as health and wellness. Her own learning and unlearning, especially as a registered dietitian in the US, is woven into what I think is a cannot put down kind of storytelling that was in her book, which came out earlier in 2023. And that it's just, it's, stunning to read, powerful, might I add, necessary reading. The book is called It Is Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies. I am beyond excited and beyond privileged to explore so much juiciness with Jessica inside this episode. And we cover the very loud messages that a body is supposed to be healthy at all times, that that's possible, and that there are certain ways that we we are meant to do that and that these messages come from very powerful places. We talk about how all of that is inherently political and it always has been. We talk about who is left out of consideration when it comes to specifically eating disorder treatment, but also general dietetic practice. And to be honest, wellness and healthcare on, on a big scale, you know, on a, on a broad scale, we talk about who intuitive eating is for and what's missing when we swap dieting, as often is the case for intuitive eating. And we also really kind of take a look at why the idea of dismantling diet culture is not enough and what we need to do instead. So for your context, before you hear Jessica and I chat and specifically, you know, straight up hear me diving into a quote from her amazing book, 
This statement that I'm going to read is from the Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives website, and that will support your listening and, as I said, context. So I quote, Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives is an annual conference that bridges nutrition science, healthcare, and the culinary arts, a collaboration between the Harvard Chan School's Department of Nutrition and the Culinary Institute of America. The conference was created to teach medical professionals about nutrition and self-care, so that they will be better prepared to teach patients valuable skills for leading healthier lives, end quote. And additionally, for your context, uh, Jessica and I explore Goop Health, which is an in real life, an IRL wellness summit hosted by Goop. Yes, Gwyneth Paltrow Goop. So enjoy our chat. All right, so I quote, I left HKHL with a roadmap for developing an eating disorder. I left in Goop Health with a free vibrator, Paltrow's own brand. I was close to rage crying multiple times in Napa. I laughed my way through Goop. Wellness is peak whiteness and is inherently healthist, but to my knowledge, it doesn't attempt to influence national health policies. Wellness sets an unattainable bar for people and how they should tend to their bodies. Health influences economic decisions for corporations, cities, states, and the country that people cannot escape end quote. So there is a lot to dig into. It's, you know, it's juicy. I would love, love, love Jessica to come back to your experiences at the Goop Summit in Goop Health, Mm -hmm. which is a clever little name. Um, But first, could you share and kind of speak to your experiences at HKHL? You know, what really stood out to me, the values of restraint that's the five D's, I, I, you know, I would love to hear more about that. The, the, how did you put it? The tea party energy of some mm-hmm. of them. So, yeah. you know, that take home message that the body that I understood that take home message that you took was the body's supposed to be healthy at all times. And I think that this is especially critical and worrying. And I feel like the audience could really, listeners could really benefit from the idea that we have to kind of acknowledge where this take home came from this this wildly influential and would you say commended conference and arm of harvard yes so the healthy kitchens healthy lives hkhl um conference again is in napa california um where you cannot fly into i mean unless you have so much money it is <laughs> like wine country style yeah <laughs> uh it is um wine country in California, there's like the snobbery is Mm. unparalleled. The, yes, the racism that, you know, folks of color face when they go there is very clear. Um, Actually, Lizzo was at um, a like festival in the area and was like outwardly like protested on the out, like on the outside, um, you know, for her work, for having trans, you know, folks, but also just because it's okay in the area to, you know, protest fat black right. women. Yeah. So that's Openly Napa. in that kind of, oh, yeah, right, right. Yeah. You. We're just okay, out right. here doing it. We don't need to hide behind, you know, our social media at all. Right. Yeah. Um, so good context. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> that's Napa. Um, <laughs> And it costs, right, being like wine country, the cost of, you know, a hotel room is 
what you can only imagine it would be. So to have a conference there that costs $1,500 just for Mm -hmm. registration, um, which again is more than goop. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes. Mm -hmm. Which was more than goop. Okay. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Um, so it costs more to go, uh, far more to stay than in LA, surprisingly. And to then like be there amongst people who like uphold health as mm-hmm. a morally righteous, you know, value. If you are um, a, you know, capital G good person, mm-hmm. you know, you mm-hmm. are always thinking about your health. You are always doing things that are in service of health. Um Yes, health is something that good people have and aspire to have. And the irony there, or maybe it isn't. Yes, I would say it's irony there is that this is a public health conference. Totally. Right? Yeah. It's not just like a medical and dietitian and culinary conference because we have to have, you know, fancy food if we're going to bring all these people together in wine country. Um, But it's supposed to be. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's supposed to be public health, um, which is in theory and in the U S and I assume elsewhere, um, for people who don't have, you know, all of the resources that Mm -hmm. rich folks have to be, you know, capital H healthy. Um, it is supposed to be for the public and supposed to be about health disparities and social determinants of health. Uh, but instead, you know, it was all about how to, you know, take two bites of food rather than like finish a whole portion. The restraint um, aspect. Yeah. Right? The teeny yeah. tiny scones. They never had plates that were plate sized, right? It was always like this weird Wild. saucery thing, right? So if you wanted an actual meal of food, you either needed to like balance two plates, which is <laughs> what I did, or you need to finish one and go back. So like, right. if you were just to have like one plate of food, it would be a snack, not a meal. So it like inherently reinforced this, like you, you know, are having dainty portions that mm. are, yes, restrained, uh, restrictive, just this like weird, I wouldn't say weird cause it's intentional, right. Vibe of like, who is like a good person and yeah. And how do we get there as well? Right. Like this is the roadmap to, to being capital. G and if you're person. not healthy, yeah. it's your fault. So right. here are the things, including this $1,500 conference that you can go to yes. that will tell you <laughs> how to be healthy because it's all on you. Which is the five D's. Do you remember those? It's not a test. <laughs> it's your book, but no, you, I like, appreciate that it. really struck me. Like it, it truly really struck me considering who it came from and like yeah. where it came from. Right. So at this conference, there was a bunch of, so it is an old conference with old people. We will just say that. <laughs> and there are regulars. There's right? regulars who go, there's regulars who speak. It, you know, it was very much a country club vibe. Like, <laughs> oh, it's good to see you here. You know, it's been so long. Um, you know, you doing your rich person things and me doing mine. Yes. So this this was a, a white female physician mm-hmm. who, you know, um, I met on the first day and she did the very like hardcore. I'm so glad you're here. Basically like a younger black woman. I'm so glad we got you to come here type of vibes. Um, And then, you know, kind of just like took me around as like her, like not necessarily like trophy, but like sparkly, shiny thing. And like Mm. would introduce me to all of her people um, and just be like, this is Jessica. And then like to the next one, like Jessica, you should talk to so. And I'm like, I I just want to get out of here. This is not working out for me. Um, Anyhow, so her 
you know, presentation, I believe was on the second day and it had been basically all about how to not eat food. So what she does with her clients, because apparently all of them and everyone just needs to eat less. Um, of course, haven't you heard right. that? <laughs> That's how apparently medicine works these days. <laughs> uh, yeah, she had her five Ds to just help people. And, you know, she hadn't like prefaced with, you know, that it's actually to make people uh, eat less. But she was like, you know, when people are hungry or when they're wanting a snack, I just tell them, think about the five D's. So distract. (laughs) My favorite, you know, is the dental one, uh, which is (laughs) brush your teeth, which is like, this is every dieting trick in like the 2000s and 90s. Yes. So distract. You said they were old. So, yeah, so, right. Yeah. That is the almond pulse of <laughs> yes, dieting. All right. This is a test. Distract, dental, delay, distance, and drink water. Oh, drink water, yeah. classic diet. Yeah, tip, right? fill yourself. You're not up. hungry. You're not hungry. No, you're just thirsty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, yeah. So I'm looking, you know, I'm texting furiously with like the one other, you know, person there uh we did a little debrief at dinner that night and it was like did you did you heard that right like what this is a public health conference um and we're really talking about every dieting trick but also how to give somebody an eating disorder and Nadia you will not be surprised um that on the first evening there the same person had come up introduced herself to me and I mentioned something about how fat phobia, weight stigma really, you know, perpetuates eating disorders. Mm. And she shared how her daughter, you know, she knows about them because her daughter has an eating disorder. Yes. Yes. And you're like, this yes. makes sense. This, yeah. This Sadly, sense. heartbreaking. Yeah. This all makes sense. Almond milk. Yeah. yeah. And she was complaining, Literally. you know, all the med students hated her because, you know, she made them like the institution start bringing like those cuties, the clementine oranges rather than donuts to like their meetings. And so the med student, and I'm like, people go to meetings because there's food there. <laughs> I don't go to a meeting for a small orange. You know, <laughs> I went because there was food. You took that away. I hated not, food. Yes. Right. Now I have to go to a meeting with mini oranges. Yeah. So it was you, a lot. <laughs> I mean, great memory, by the way. Like, inc- I would not have remembered that. So great, mem- great working memory. <laughs> it must be because you're so capital H healthy. Right. My brain, you know, it must be all of that, you know, omega-3s and Mediterranean right. diet must that be. I learned there. My brain and health. the small, small plates, you know. Yeah. So you said, I'm going to quote you again, because it's hard not to. You said about your experiences, Jessica, and I quote, health and its sister wife, loved that. Um, that was me, sorry. So I quote, health and its sister wife, virtue, mm-hmm. whatever present at the conference and offered us all an opportunity to perform capital H health if we didn't already have it, end quote. Mm-hmm. So we collectively, I feel it's very easy for us to agree on this. I know you and I would, but Collectively, we get this very loud and freaking clear message that our bodies are the problem, and and you know to to look at there as you you know like as you've offered that message that you took in terms of their health status, you do you just look at it and then we know everything, mm-hmm. and then that's also the only thing we're missing. You know, um, we just need some discipline. Love oh, that yes. word. You know, we mm-hmm. just need discipline. We just need the right information, right? We're missing the vital five days maybe to fix it. 
Mm-hmm. Could you speak to, you know, just a small kind of thing here. Could you speak to health as a social construct and, and one that what I took that, that healthy kitchens, healthy lives is very committed to upholding, but also how is this inherently political? Mm-hmm. Yes, that was just veer me back question. on track. Yeah. It, well, right, just veer me back on track. Um, so I talk about health as a social construct because it is something that we have agreed upon. Um, it Like there's no objective like health and not health measurement. You know, some people will say like healthy is a, you know, not having any quote, you know, diseases or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But health is so much more in our society because a, you know, thin, white, wealthy looking, you know, person, regardless of what medically they have going on, like will present in a room and people will automatically assume mm-hmm. that they're healthy. Right. So it's just these like other markers of the same thing. Like we're doing the repeat. So, you know, affluent then white people, you know, are privileged in many ways, but also assumed sure. to be healthy. Um, so we've decided that health looks a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like, why did we need to do this yet again? You know, it's just these different layers of ways that we are reinforcing like the same systems. And the reasons that we did indeed have to, you know, do this a different way is because in the medical field, that was really like some of the initial places that people started talking about eugenics and right. the reason, right. yeah, the ways that eugenics falls into medicine is really the engineering and this, you know, like bioengineering of the, you know, good, healthy white person um, to distance themselves from the other. And, you know, historically, yeah. and in my research, you know, that is, you know, enslaved people or otherwise, you know, um, migrated, mostly mm-hmm. black people. Um, and so it was like race degeneracy, which was basically like white people having fun eating, you know, more food than they did when they were, you know, in famine or starving. Um, and then like the medical field deciding that, you know, in order to be an upstanding, you know, virtuous, pure citizen, you need to be thin and restrict and restrain. And, um, so that, is how they constructed both health and whiteness, in, right. you know, to be the same. And so it's impossible to separate. Mm. They're yeah. so connected. Like, uh, is that how you would say they're so connected? Yeah. They are, they, yeah. It's almost a circle. The Venn diagram is yeah. almost a circle. <laughs> I know you speak to your experience being in the US makes complete sense. I, I can observe so much similarity here in Australia in, in such tragic ways I remember reading, it was absolutely hard to read. And I think that's necessary. This, you spoke to, you know, there's no mental health diagnoses for centuries mm. of colonialism, I think is how you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, no, no inquiry about, do you come from enslaved humans mm-hmm. or the impacts that, that, you know, something that, that I think is unfathomable and, you know, um, Australia, white Australia has a black history, um, yeah. a beautiful long before white folks arrived, a beautiful black history. And, you know, as someone who's gone through, you know, the health sciences in education, you learn like this little, this little window just here of like um, what is termed um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. Um, and it's so separate. It's like, okay, there's just this whole group of people and they're genetically predispositioned, oh. quote unquote, to okay. get X disease, get Y disease. And really mm-hmm. that's about it. You just learn 
I mean, you, you learn the inherited intrinsic racism, like you're getting it right there, right? Like mm-hmm. these people are different. This right. is this is othering and this is mm-hmm. their genetic issues. It couldn't possibly right. be anything else going on here that we don't want to talk about or we don't want to address. Mm-hmm. And you spoke to, I think, the most powerful way I've ever seen it written, um, which might also speak to my naivety, but the com- you said something like, we can't hold the complexity of every client. Uh, and I understand you were speaking about some clients and not all clients um, with the current medical model, with the violence that it has to it. And that how much of that, as you said, the Venn diagram, it, it, health and whiteness. And, and <laughs> you talk, Jessica, in your book about how infrequently, I don't know if that's how you'd put it, but that that's what I took from it, how infrequently Black women feature in eating disorder research. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I think like we talk ad nauseum probably at Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives <laughs> about evidence-based practice. Mm-hmm. And I, I say it with that silly voice for a reason, you know, evidence for who? Uh, how most nutrition, body weight, you know, health-related sciences, you know, you spoke to the idea that public health very much needs to be discussing the social determinants of health, like like in the same breath, really. Mm-hmm. So we don't, I guess, for, for folks who aren't clear, nutrition, body weight, and, and health-related data doesn't really look at those intersections of other parts of identity and reality, Right. No, right. Yes, you're correct. They do not. So you wrote in your book, and I I would love people to hear this quote, you write, and I quote, when we consistently center thin, white, cis, non-disabled, neurotypical, and well-resourced people in our quote-unquote best practices, there is no way for us to ethically incorporate evidence into our work, in my opinion, with people who do not have these privileged identities. So end quote. And Knowing that you you're a dietitian, knowing that you've spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of your own resources in these spaces, I was really genuinely curious: was this reality? This who was the evidence for? Was this clear to you initially in your dietetic studies, or is it something that just became more clear as your work progressed? I guess. I would say it's a yes and I would say it's like a yes on the surface and then okay. as you go on you realize how impactful that is like what that actually means so right. similar to what you learned um about your aboriginal I think it's aboriginal communities yeah first nations yeah. peoples first nations. another one. yeah first nations yeah um we were taught about what black people eat Right. As I am in the audience, oh, like I'm learning. Right. right. Yeah. I'm learning. Was it a about white what, person as well? Oh, of course. One thousand percent. I didn't know a black dietitian. Right. Until. Um, uh, 20. Th- 10 years or more into the field. Wow, I want to so say like all 30. through your studies. Oh, like, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Pl- and, and the clinical placement. I'm not uh-huh. sure what you call it there, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there was, I would say this, there was a misfit group of us in (laughs) my nutrition program. There's four of us. Uh, I was the black girl. There was the Latina girl there was the like chubby girl and the, um, international girl. Oh, I see. And so we were like, we we were the people who were learning about each other. And then everybody else was like thin and white and 
you know, from the U.S. So no, I get it. Yeah, we were just we were the, we we weren't even friends, you know. Like mm. we were in touch, we were there, but like we needed each other. We would stick together through everything, and it's like in another world, we never would have met. And you know, we haven't really stayed in touch because we weren't friends. We just really needed each other. Then, um, so then, back to your question, <laughs> I knew <laughs> what was going on, like what was in the research, but I didn't know that place like university research or you know that healthy kitchens healthy lives or like policies actually rely on the same crappy data right it's like you a, know it's, it's all one line kind of yeah essentially. yeah it wasn't just me talking to my clients and being able to say right. well you know this is actually not for you because it didn't ever include you it's like oh everything that people are getting funded is because of this same like oh, metric from chills. the 1950s yeah do you find, and I guess this is observational, but you know, you've been in the industry far longer than I have, and I, I have, you know, I, I am curious because obviously I have my own observations. But how do you see this lack, this complete lack, this complete, you know, whitewashed version of what is best practice and what is the evidence and what are we to do as health professionals? Let's like be clear. How do you find that work like kind of lands with? other health pros that you've come across? Like, do you think folks see it? Do you think folks turn away intentionally or they don't want to know about it? I have found that the clearer I am, the more people can't disagree with me. Um, Totally. I used to make cases, you know, I used to, you know, have decks of, you know, research of, you know, slides of facts, you know, of all of these things to like prove my point, you know, like weight stigma research or, you know, just like weight science that, you know, fat people can be healthy. Like I used to have all those studies, all the health at every size studies and just be like ready at any moment to like, just, you know, throw them on the table. But I was in a meeting earlier today that was about uh, specifically, and I'll put in quotes like childhood obesity, which another social uh, construct, but um, in the end, I was saying, you know, cause it was supposed to be like this, like childhood obesity and health. And I was like, mm. wait a second. Uh, so it, rather than, you know, going into, um, well, you know, ch- fat children can be healthy and like all of these things. I was like, do you want smaller kids? Do you want healthy kids? Because we can have, you know, we can focus on making and shrinking kids. Or we can, you know, think about environments and trauma and racism and all of these things. Uh, But like, these are not the same situation at all. And so when I ask those questions for reflection, Mm. that's when people are like, oh, right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what what can you say? I mean, I'm sure folks (laughs) might still internally prefer one side, but maybe it's harder to say it. Right. That to acknowledge part. that. Yeah. And then, right. Cause then if they're going to say like, oh, we want to shrink kids. I'm like, well, okay. So that's actually not, you know, that's not what this is, you know, either about, or this is not the place for you, or I am in the wrong place because right. I don't believe in shrinking kids. So like make choices here and let's be clear about what we're talking about. Awesome. Okay. So it's been like a funnel to get like everything into like statements that will resonate mm-hmm. with people and make it hard to deny that what we're talking about is not actually what we need to be addressing. Right. The goals yeah. that, that agreed upon construct of it all being the same thing. Mm-hmm. 
not, yeah. You know, in reading your book, It's Always Been Ours, and, and specifically about your experiences, I said I wanted to come back to the goop in group health, right? That's what it, it's very catchy. Yep. I don't know it how I is. forgot it. It's very catchy. No, it's good. And the people there for Gwyneth are her goopies, not her goopies. goopies. It was, it, it was just a moment. It was, it was a moment. Okay. Sorry. I interrupted. No, please. Like, I love that. Um, so I got the impression that you were surprised. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, I'd love to hear you, but I was, I, I, you know, I left that part of the book thinking, oh, okay. And and surprised at the absence of particular language mm-hmm. that was that wasn't used, I guess. Yeah. And and ideas, you know, for instance, like the O slurs, mm-hmm. you know, you said that that language just was not used. There wasn't like a huge weight centric focus. No. Mm-hmm. Shocked me. Out shocked. Hey. Yeah. But at the same time, you shared that you left, you know, feeling out of place. Mm-hmm. I, I would love to hear about your experiences and 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 if I can confirm for folks who are not familiar and you're, you know, they're lucky if they're not familiar, right, in a way that, that maybe they don't know much about Goop, but oh. <laughs> this, this, this is apparently about wellness, right? This is a, mm-hmm. you know, but I guess what and who was left out if you had left feeling that way? I will preference it uh, or preface, not uh, preference. Um, they this, both work. <laughs> right. Let's just use all the words. Um by saying, in, in case people are wondering why I went in the first place. Oh, yes, that's um, important. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I probably would have gone because I like going to strange things, but this was, you know, <laughs> actually for book research, uh, which kind of answers the question because wellness, as you know, you know, um, is often like this. Well, you know, if health is inaccessible or doesn't apply, mm-hmm. or, you know, I understand that, you know, the medical industrial complex is trash, you know, I think of wellness and I'm like, oh, okay. So that's what, that's what I'm hearing you say this. And then I'm hearing, you know, orthorexic, you know, people talk about their 10,000 supplements and 5,000 foods they don't eat, like as part of their wellness. And I was like, I, I don't know what like this is like umbrella term. So I will just drop into this conference and see. And yeah, I was expecting like healthy kitchens, healthy lives 2.0 that it was just going to be a more, even more expensive and like more <laughs> supplementy version of this like pure virtuous situation um, that, you know, we were going to be eating shakes rather than food, right? We were going to be, um, instead of like small portions of perhaps like actual food is going to be small portions of like mushrooms or whatever it was. That's, that's what I was expecting. Injected with something. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. I yeah. thought it was going to be the same vibes. Um, but yes, nobody said mm-hmm. obesity. Nobody said anything about calories. Yeah. Nobody talked about weight loss. Nobody talked about weight gain because it was still pandemic and people were doing the like body mm-hmm. stuff, you know, mm-hmm. nobody said like that they were, doing these things even to be healthy right it was just like this i say like a white woman's disneyland it was just supposed to be this like fun day of wellness and i Mm. will say they there were deaths there was you know we were drinking collagen um (laughs) at multiple it was sparkling no i had the sparkling collagen the next day yeah um injections with yes b12 uh so it was like wild and all over the case and people could have said like do these things to be healthy sure but they sure didn't it was just like 
this is some weird stuff that we had that we're just offering you today. You know, so it was like, uh, I mean, Disneyland sounds like it was an amusement park of sorts of like Mm -hmm. fun, quote unquote. Right. And then their seminars were like about finding love and one was astrology. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, (laughs) I I learned a thing or two that I've, you know, stuck on it, but yeah, it was, astrology, not like some weird, you know, health or wellness situation. Hmm. Um, one was on creativity, which was questionable, but still not ridiculous. Well, it was, but anyhow, like th- <laughs> those were the vibes. Oh, and then you right. can't forget the Porsche driving experience was one of them. Oh yes. Yeah. So a sponsor or some, yeah. some association capitalism, totally you a know, of course. Yes. <laughs> um, because yeah, the, so that was a vibe. It was like Disneyland cause you ride around in cars. Um, that's wow. what this was. And, but I, yeah, I was expecting like shame, blame, like mm. the languagey stuff that we hear about wellness, but indeed it was not. Um, so yes, I was, I was surprised. Did you leave feeling like, is that a fair assessment? You know, I can't remember your exact words from the book at this, at this moment, but would you say you did leave feeling this isn't a place for you and and maybe that's okay. Like I, I'm curious how that felt. Again, the juxtaposition, I left like healthy kitchens, healthy lives and didn't speak for a day. I didn't put this in the book, but I really was just processing on all cylinders. I did not speak, Mm -hmm. um, which is rare because you can, (laughs) there's just no words. It hadn't been like condensed into anything yet. And it was just this like repeat thought, but I was laughing the entire goop day um, and it was clear that I did that I stuck out there and I wasn't ever made to feel bad about it. You know, mm-hmm. like people weren't talking about, you know, how like some people of color, some people who experience stigma um, might need these products, you know, more than others or like any, it wasn't any of that. It was like, you're here to experience the same B12 injections as everyone. Uh, but it was clear that I did, like, I stuck out. It was clear that I, I was not expected to be there. Right. Um, but if I had left, I just would have been like, that's funny. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. I'm never going to go back. Um, but if I liked dusts, I might still buy them again. No. <laughs> I mean, it's safe to say it's a pretty elitist environment, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I spent we spent weeks on our outfits, like deciding whether or not to stick out <laughs> even more by wearing something fully right. off the wall. Yes, and so Natalie, my friend who went me went with me. She was the fattest person there, and she definitely you know was going for a belly forward outfit. So Love it. you know because we were already gonna like obviously stick out, but like so what you know were we gonna carry <laughs> with ourselves to this moment? And, okay, yeah, I appreciate the planning. So. If we could shift gears a little bit to the the concept, the framework, the term intuitive eating. Sure. <laughs> yes, love the laugh. So a question that you explore in your book, you know, specifically the primary sticking point, I guess, that mm-hmm. you have with, or that you speak to about intuitive eating, um, you say, and I quote, the problematizing and pathologizing of eating food when not biologically hungry you say with intuitive eating, we're supposed to eat less and it's supposed to look a certain way, end quote. So there again, there's some eat less vibes, mm-hmm. you know, who, who is intuitive eating for? And, and I guess, you know, 
this, I get this is a loaded question, but I, I don't want to prompt too much, but I think that that sticking point is a very important one to discuss. And I'm curious who, who you see it's for and, and where it's at really. Mm-hmm. So both with my critiques of intuitive eating and health at every size, people automatically jump to like, but it was, but it was helpful for me. It was, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, and I'm like, that that's fine. That's sure. not that. Yeah. <laughs> many <Cool>. things <laughs> are great for many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's never worked or yeah, it's never worked for my client. So uh, mm-hmm. we'll start there. Um, again, with the like 5d and other, yeah, things that are just like eat less, like the goal is to eat less. Right. And so I, yes, intuitive eating is a different Yeah, it's a different, yeah, it looks differently. But with intuitive eating, you know, the idea or one of the, you know, goals was to help people heal from, you know, binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so intuitive eating was the, you know, once you give yourself permission to eat everything, then you won't want to eat everything. You know, once you discover satisfaction, you won't want to eat everything. Once you listen to your hunger, you only eat when you're hungry, you won't need to eat everything. where but one also, is pathologized, right? right. Like that that so, other outcome, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it is incredibly helpful. It totally addresses, you know, in the original books, like the dieting industry and all those restrictions and rigidity. And I talk about how we traded that for 10 principles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many clinicians will say, you know, Jessica, I don't really use that. I may give out the book. Um And, you know, that has it, but it's not like I, you know, talk through those 10 and I'm like, okay, so then what are you doing? If Right. You you talk about this in the book, like, (laughs) like, what do you do? Right. What are you, what are you doing? If like, this is, you know, perhaps you're not doing the 10 principles, but the values are still there. Like Mm -hmm. make peace with the food police and then you'll just, you know, eat less, Um, which is constantly the, like the like reinforcement that eating too much is a bad thing, which right. we're just trying to stop ourselves from doing. Um, so mm. who is it for? I feel, I feel like it's for the thinner white women. I won't even say thin. I sure. will say people who, you know, if they were to eat quote, what they truly crave or eat enough until they were actually full, you know, are not fat people to mm-hmm. me and my experience, mm-hmm. right? Because people listening to their hunger um, like could end up gaining weight and in my experience have, um, which is fine. Yeah, yeah which is fine. Um, but then thinking that they failed at intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. I've, yeah. That like it's only happened. right if I haven't changed yeah. or, right. or I haven't gained weight really. Or I'm not actually listening because if I actually listened, I wouldn't gain weight because intuitive eating, right, right is supposed to be. You know, uh, so it's still, yeah, it, yeah, right. But they were told and, you know, shown, you know, from dieting that intuitive eating was the actual way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, same, like it's assumed to have like the same impacts or effects as dieting, which is like thinness. And when mm-hmm. it doesn't, people feel like they failed. Um, I've heard that, you know, multiple times, but then also it's for people who have food access. It's for people who can actually, uh-huh. you know, eat when they're hungry. Um so it's like for people. time, like, like scheduling yeah, resources, yeah. Yeah. scheduling yeah. money. Um, yes. All types of access people who don't, you know, work 10 hour shifts without mm-hmm. breaks. Um, cause you can't do that. Um, you can't be intuitive when you can't eat. Yep. Yeah. 
that's just not how bodies work. I, it's really interesting. And I, I couldn't agree more about the swapping us like one thing for the other, like the, yeah. the, you know, and I, that's certainly something I've heard. That's certainly something I have, have really had to challenge myself on of like, is this, and I, I agree. I think it is. I think the, you know, where it came from is important to, you know, have, have a critique of, um, where it still sits. One thing that I do see in clinical and therapeutic fields for intuitive eating in a way that people um, hold on to it so dearly, of mm-hmm. course, if it worked for them, but two, because it gives people to offer, gives something for people to offer uh, mm-hmm. to their clients, you know, mm-hmm. like, so if you're not going to do calories in calories out, if you're not going to do Mediterranean diet, if you're not going to do, <laughs> you know, whatever the plan is that you were doing, you can offer intuitive eating. And that makes it also very enticing. A lot of people will say like, what do I do if I don't have this thing to offer? And I would always ask people or tell people like you are enough to Mm. offer to someone. You Mm. don't need principles. Like you are, you know, the work, the relationship. Um, so is therapeutic is is a offer. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So. Thank you for adding that. I really appreciate yeah. it. I, I wanted to share with you in, in 2020, when I, I first came across you, Jessica, and your work via the Amplify Melanated Voices call out that you, and please correct me if I mispronounce Alicia's name, Alicia McCulloch. Is that, yes. is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when the two of you began this, this kind of call out on, on Instagram, I was part of a professional group that had formed really to support one another. It was a I think I'm pretty sure it was lockdown number one here on Gadigal country in Australia. And, you know, we are famous for having a a long, like it was a lot, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that really was the first time I remember in that group where we began exploring the the problems, the, Mm -hmm. the things with intuitive eating um, that I certainly had not heard about, or I hadn't, you know, I had not come across that. I was also, and maybe this is something I'm grateful for um, that I wanted to share with you. I was only one year into really utilizing the practice mm. and I was only two years into, you know, post, post-study. Uh, so it's very clear to me, I could have gone on like white womaning. It's mm-hmm. very clear to me that that was like a turning point. Um, and I, I think should the sequence of events that happened, let's like maybe be, um, conscious of the pandemic and so many other shifts, I I think hearing your voice and realizing what I just couldn't see for very obvious privilege reasons, I also wish that wasn't necessary. Um, you know that your labor wasn't necessary for me to see that. Such as the reality of privilege and status quo upholding and all of that. I think something, and I really appreciate that you said. I agree entirely. Being having a critique of something doesn't deny Mm. someone's experience. It doesn't, you know, it's not, it's important to have critiques. Absolutely. I love questioning everything. So I think we speak a very similar language there, but this idea of like, take for all, allow all food. So you eat less of some, as you said, right. Could you speak to why those messages aren't messages that are radically transforming? They aren't really what we need when it comes to food. I think for anybody, Mm -hmm. And therefore, maybe, you know, just another small question, why the idea of kind of just getting rid of diet culture or dismantling it all mm. or rejecting it as it's spoken about, mm-hmm. it just isn't enough and and what we do need. Yeah, I think the 
phrase, maybe even the chapter title, who knows, is, you know, we can't eat ourselves to liberation, right? And intuitive eating is supposed to be like this food freedom, this food liberation, like I found liberation, (laughs) like the only thing that was keeping me from liberation, you know, was this like feeling of needing to diet and have my body a certain way. And literally people feel like intuitive eating changed their life and they have liberation. And I'm always like, yeah, like, because you were so close already to being liberated. Absolutely. You're like, right. right here. Yeah. yeah, you were so close. Um, and now, you know, you feel 1000% comfortable in yourself and your body and all of these things where the rest of us um, who actually, you know, can feel one way about a body, but have to go mm-hmm. outside where, you know, people feel differently about whether or not our bodies are worthy, you know, of hiring, of existing and all of these other right. things. Yeah. The conversation about liberation and freedom and all these things that we put on, you know, intuitive eating is indeed a distraction. What and also just represents like, if that was liberation for you or freedom for you, like what, what does that say about, you know, your experience? And if a you know, framework from the nineties was all some people need. <laughs> That's weird. Um, so what are we, yes, actually talking about, are we talking about diet culture, you know, like mm. people imprisoned, you know, let's talk about what liberation looks like, uh, from, you know, prison industrial complexes. There's so many examples of right. where people need actual liberation and how focusing on diet culture is not going to bring mm. everyone liberation. I really appreciate, and I think I think listeners could really understand whether they identify as being there or not. That I that you're already so close. So if if this has been transformative to go through, you know, it makes complete. So I, I hope that really makes sense to a lot of folks, and that that idea of radical, which I, I almost don't love the connotation yeah. of that word. I love the yeah. word, but I understand how it lands, and that transformation. You know, I do often think if people's buy-in is this, mm. and then I I guess I hope it extends to more. I hope it extends to a greater mm-hmm. understanding of we got here for a good reason. Mm. Yeah. We got here distracted for a very good reason, right? So mm. if if freeing you of that distraction now makes you available for some really meaningful transformation that's mm. not about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is about us collectively. That's the hope I tend to hold and I tend to work to every day, but I completely, I really appreciate that delineation of who it would be transformative or radical for. Uh, And then, you know, it's not a case of showing up without safety in the world. It's not a case of showing up without, you know, just a bare level of respect in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I think you spoke earlier too, which I've definitely heard from anyone in a, in a fat body as a client who that that still is not going to change their experience in the world as a fat person. So Mm -hmm. in fact, it could make it more dangerous in some cases of, Oh, you're eating that. Yes. Oh, yeah. which I've never heard. Like Mm -hmm. no, no one's ever said that to me. So do you feel like overall the, like the, what we do need, again, just a small question is really (laughs) about, it's just so much more than this. Oh yeah. It's so much more than this. Uh, it's systems, it's structures and institutions, you know, and some people will take on like a corporation here and like that. I like, I like with people going, but basically, you know, 
if it were as easy as dismantling, you know, capitalism and white supremacy, that is what it will need. But like, how do we get there? And, you know, mm-hmm. that can be really overwhelming, you know, to think about and it will happen in my lifetime. Um, but like what choices in our energy, like you already mentioned, uh, when we're not distracted, like, can we be shoving in those directions? Um, right. How can people be showing up and like openly rejecting what is quote evidence-based? Because what does that right. do when we're all like, you know, therefore not using that in our academy of nutrition and dietetics, you know, dissolves, for example, because mm. it's all, you know, so what I do like or can, yeah. <laughs> so like that would be one example, you know, where can we get funding for research that is not, you know, the stuff that we consistently Upholding. just like repeat over and over again. So right. yeah, where can we poke holes in those that actually mm. start to bring down the whole house? I always talk about poking holes too. I love that we share that kind of language. Um, One final question. I'm I'm curious. I hadn't planned to ask you this, but I think I had actually really wanted to ask you this was you work in incredibly problematic, toxic environments. I'm just the medical, you know, industrial Mm -hmm. complex as as itself. I know that you hold a variety of roles and existences and identities, obviously being a dietitian is not all you are or what you do, but is that a constant challenge for you personally? Or do you find it actually, this is, this is how I am operating. This is the work I'm contributing in this space. That one is a great question and something that I continually think about and will be, you know, thinking a lot harder about this fall because I've got a little mm-hmm. wiggle room. Um, And I constantly talk to my friends about like this active and accidental activism, how like me as a person, if I were born, you know, with privilege and, you know, could just go into a situation and blend in, I would have loved that nine to five, you know, benefited, um, you know, job where you, you know, <laughs> you retire after, you know, 20 or 30 years and you have a full like take home package and lifetime healthcare, like that in the way that my, you know, existence works, like that sounds great, but you know, my clients were not being served by those systems. So I made different choices. Um, and then like building those critiques got me to being invited to places like Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives. And so, yes, I do go and I do change, you know, like one or two minds there. Um, In the book, I talk about Black women's resilience. And, you know, I need to both be aware of when I fall into like Black girl magic over, you know, compensating for my um, blackness by trying to do it all. Um, But I've really found that the resilience for me comes into like the building of community and finding people, you know, like me, finding people who support me, um, really holding on to like the grounding that I have with community Mm -hmm. and friends. Um, And also people who just remind me that I'm a regular person because all of this is wild. (laughs) The stuff that's in the book is wild. It's weird. It's like, how do these things keep happening to you, Jessica? They've continued to happen, you know, through today. Um, So yeah, the grounding that comes is great. I would love Mm -hmm. to say, you know, that I have a 
wonderful yoga practice or like whatever it is and no stress. Um, I know this is the work that I'm supposed to be doing, which makes it easier to do. But um, I also think it's part of my like, hmm, maybe not duty, but like responsibility to leave this world a better place than, you know, when I arrived here. And if I can make it, you know, easier for the next, you know, group of Black girls, um, that would be just amazing. I think you are doing all of that and more. Maybe don't give yourself enough credit for that. But <laughs> I I have so enjoyed speaking with you and I so appreciate your time and wisdom. And as you said, it's all a bit wild in the book. Yes. <laughs> like, so if folks want to know all the wilds, they are just going to have to get that and get reading. So thank you so much for sharing, sharing with me and with us, Jessica. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm not interested or focused on policing language. If you say diet culture, cool. I do as well. I also want to be clear that stopping there isn't liberation for, for us, for all of us. And that's also why inside my 12-week food freedom program, I am guiding you step-by-step to unlearn what diet culture really is and how it's showing up in your world, joining the dots, if you will, to how we collectively got here and how you got here and what supportive alternate paths are actually available to you when we are talking about health and well-being. It is why, in fact, there's an entire module inside called Redefining Health and Wellbeing and why inside every single one of the six modules, we dig into the narratives that got us here again, individually and collectively. And this means from the start, we look at and we name these structures that got us here, that uphold these norms in our society and that keep us stuck. We are going to put the blame where it belongs and prioritize bringing it back to you nourishing your body, even as we are living in these oppressive systems, as is my commitment to anti-oppressive healthcare. It's why we explore so much more than intuitive eating as this idea of, you know, let's eat the perfect amount in the perfect way at the perfect time, you know, because I'm so in touch with my body. And, And instead, and so much more than that, we are going to tool you up with what often is more mechanical eating to meet your actual reality. You know, skills, for instance, that you need for when you don't feel connected to your body. You know, a client just last week from my last Food Freedom cohort shared how she had felt so beyond drained, so emotional, so overwhelmed, and wasn't feeling hungry. And so because of that, didn't have food. And and yet, she was able to resource in this moment, noticing, hey, I do feel very validly distracted. I'm not connected to my body. I'm not connected to my hunger. This is why, and this is what drove my limited prep. I don't really have any food. And this is what also impacted my energy. This is why I felt even more drained. She didn't beat herself up. She she literally went and bought, hey, I'm going to get more go-to food options because this will inevitably happen again because life And she reiterated and and really felt so empowered around this importance of how much we need to eat regularly, even when we don't feel like it. So we need those skills that she she had learned, she had developed. And this is just a fraction of what we do step by step inside Food Freedom. 
also that you can walk away with a transformed relationship to food, to health, and to your body. So you can end that tedious, that life-sucking mental gymnastics that you go through about what to eat. How much have I eaten? I've got to feel guilty. Whenever I step outside of these narrow parameters that we've been given around food and body. Also that you can both you know, nourish yourself, you can support your well-being, but also unpack those deeper layers around your body image, the impact that it's had, and what health even means to you. To learn more about the Food Freedom Program and to join the final cohort for 2023, to find Jessica, her socials, her podcast, her book, and the other resources that I've referenced that I've mentioned, you'll find all of that for this episode on my website, which is nadiafelsch.com forward slash podcast. You can also find the link in your podcast player. Thank you so much for joining me. I will see you next time.